Welcome to the Change Africa podcast, where we bring you stories of inspiring individuals and thought leaders leading Africa's transformation. I'm your host, Isaac Kojurenu Abwa, and together with my co-host, Daniel Merki, we'll be exploring diverse perspectives, challenges, and opportunities for growth and development on the continent every week. Each episode, we delve into a different aspect of African life, featuring knowledgeable and engaging guests who provide unique insights and a fresh perspective on the issues affecting the continent across a wide range of topics from economics to culture and social issues. So whether you're already well-versed in African affairs or you're just starting to explore this fascinating and complex part of the world, the Change Africa podcast is an excellent resource for you. Sit back and enjoy another thought-provoking discussion that will inform and challenge you to expand your understanding of Africa. Today my guest is Alfred Samba. Alfred is the co-founder and CEO at Butterfly Effect and chief community officer at Iconic. Previously, he was the global head of social content at Gymshark, where he played a pivotal role in growing the brand's fitness community from 1.5 million to 20 million within seven years. Alfred is a social media genius and today is the guest of the Change Africa podcast. Alfred, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, guys. In 2012, I think, when you um, finished your undergraduate degree, how did you see the world of social media at a point? And what were some of the... Because you did a degree in marketing, you did very well. But I don't think um, social media had blown to become this huge giant that it was at that time and even if it was then now with the influence it has become more concrete that almost every business needs to have it as, as part of a strategy what was the difference in how social media was treated then and now yeah again thank you so much for having me on this podcast i, I really love the opportunity to be able to speak and share my background, experience, and skill set uh, with a whole continent. Uh, I, I'm really, I was really excited to be able to hop on here and share this with you. Uh, but but going to your original question, um, I, I obviously, I, I, the reason why I got into marketing first and foremost was because I was a massive fan of Steve Jobs, and the way that he was able to focus on humanizing very complicated information and storytell in a way that got people really excited, even though he was mentioning that a device would be only $2,000, he still got people screaming and shouting and excited. I was very fascinated by that skill set. So that got me on the journey to to want to get involved in the marketing space. Because until then, everybody that was in marketing was wearing shiny suits and didn't really reflect the way that I saw the world. And then it was only when Mark Zuckerberg came in. And I think that people forget how much of a change in movement that was. A 23-year-old saying no to a billion dollars from Yahoo, uh, uh, creating a whole new space where me and my friends were hanging out. And being a, a marketing graduate and a marketing student, uh, you learn about the, uh, uh, the four Ps, which is the product, place, price, and promotion. And the one P that I felt that was going to change based on where me and my friends were spending our time was the place because product is a given price, of course, uh, a, a promotion, of course, but then the place where people are spending their time and therefore change of promotion based on where their attention is, is the theory that I had at the time. 
I actually put together a my my dissertation was all about how I believed that small to medium sized businesses would be able to therefore leverage this free resource to be able to dethrone their larger competitors. It was marked down by my university uh, 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 professors because there was no Harvard references. And my whole experience was to become that reference from then on. And it went from literally, I got a first class degree, but I probably have a record number of like rejections from interviews when I graduated from university because I was telling all these businesses that social media is going to be a thing. And they didn't believe me. They, they didn't think it's going to be more than a child's play thing. But eventually over time, once people started to see a proven model with what we've been able to do at Gymshark and other brands that have come and thrived in the space that people are now starting to talk about and understand the, uh, the ROI of social media, business people, you know, especially uh, uh, in the early days of digital, love to have these like terminologies and jargon that made them sound very, very smart, like ROI and KPIs and things like that. But but for the most part, these are the same people that were just in an industry where they were convincing people to spend millions of dollars on billboards and television ads where you had no ROI linked to it. It's just an industry, I believe, that whilst a lot of people talk about marketing and the digital space being very forthcoming with change and innovation, people are actually very hesitant and very, very defensive. And that's how the industry was at the start. But now it's becoming more painful to sit on the sidelines because of the reinforcement that comes from success stories of people that are leveraging the space. And that's just where we are at right now. And you seem very, you know, rooted in the theory of marketing. Like you said, from day one, you wanted to unpack what really it is that people can see in social media. If I should ask you, and I'm going deeper, I'm going to, we're definitely going to go into the Jim Shark story, but if I should just go deeper, what are some of the key insights that you feel like people, the average person doesn't know about how to utilize social media in building communities and brand that when they get to know that insight or a couple of insights will change their perspective of how to approach it? I, I think that social media in theory is actually a lot more simple um, than people think. It's basically just how we interact with people in different contexts uh, 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 online. For example, there's a lot of different social channels. I, I like to to break things down really simply in human form. Uh, a, a different platform is just a different venue or different context. How how you speak to somebody when you're at the church versus how you speak to them when you're at the club is completely different. And if you see Instagram as a particular venue versus Twitter as a particular venue, you know what the rules of engagement are and how people, what people expect in that venue and how to interact and resonate in that space. And that's all that it is. It's like, okay, cool. If we're a brand and here's our role in society and here's what we have to offer, how do we communicate about that in all these different contexts in the way that actually uh, 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 adheres to the, 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 the context of the space that also aims to grab attention by standing out based on the opposite of what everybody else is doing? And, and, and that's all that it is. And you have to stay really, really scrappy. I think that people think that you need to invest a lot of money in high powered devices. But because social media is all about authentic connections, actually using a phone and being super scrappy and super simple and being able to get your message across in the quickest way possible, that's the most effective way to utilize the platforms.
Okay, so now let's talk about how you contributed in building one of the biggest communities in the world, um, especially in that field of um, sports. Now, Gymshark started off as a small company that was just trying to sell supplements and evolved. At the time that you came in, I believe it was around just three years. Can you tell us about what that process was like? When you came into Gymshark, what was the atmosphere like? And obviously, they had grown the social media platform to a certain extent. But what was it that motivated you to join the community in the first place, the company? But what was that atmosphere like, if you can um, um, tell us about it? Yeah, so um, obviously, if I have to take you back to um, the start, when I, when I, I talked about um, pretty much going door-to-door to different companies, I think I got like rejected from 20 interviews because everyone was saying, you're trying to get us to do this social thing where we're too busy doing press and PR. And I was telling them that they're going to be like dead soon. Uh, I was a little bit arrogant in the early parts of my career. <laughs> so, 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 so no, no, no wonder, no wonder they were not paying me any attention. But, uh, eventually, uh, I landed at an agency, uh, uh, which allowed me to not only, um, kick off my marketing career, but they allowed me to do a lot of social media research and sell slash give, uh, uh, free research and consultancy to our clients. So as, as an added value. And I was doing a lot of research about the space and, and sharpening my armor. Uh, and then I obviously stumbled onto a brand called Gymshark Online and what they were doing. And they were literally embodying what I was saying in my theory. I did a bit more research about the brand, started to learn more about their approach. I figured out that the founders were no older than me. They were actually living in the same area that I was in Birmingham in the UK. And they were killing it. And, and, and then I started to become a fan. I, I was actually a big fan of some of the influences that they already had in their roster. Uh, one being the Hodge twins. I don't know whether you know anything about them at the time. They're the ones that pretty much invented the term gains at the gym. And me and my friends were all trying to get those gains. And I heard one time <laughs> in an expo with Gymshark in Birmingham, me and my brother couldn't miss it. It was when I went to that expo and I saw that there was people queuing up for four hours just to see these guys for, for five seconds. And then when I started to see the people that were running the show and the operation, it's just people that were the same age as me, a young company, killing it, understood social. And I thought that it would be a, a, an amazing dream to potentially end up working for the business. And then ironically, later on, I, I, I was w- buying the products as, as the people, one of the people in the, in the hashtags wearing Gymshark clothing, trying to be a Gymshark athlete and, and using them as a reference point for what great social media was like. And it was only when I started to blog on LinkedIn about social media that actually the team at Gymshark spotted one of my articles and then uh, uh, they, they sent a headhunter to go and, uh, and reach out to me. And, uh, and the rest was history. And, and when I joined the business, it's a big opportunity, a brand that you love, and you're actually able to showcase the theory that you, you've, you've been trying to convince people on. But the reality was when I got there, they were a lot more further on than I was. I had the theory and obviously the years of enthusiasm, but they were practical. Initially, I came with these idealistic ideas for how they're going to transform from more of a scrappy startup 
to competing versus your Nikes. But then the thing that I realized is that with social media, just like human interaction, it takes time and romancing to get to a point where you can shift people's perception and get them to trust you to be a different context. And it was just that learning every day, earning trust every day, the building the brand day by day that eventually ended up to what you see today. And when I joined, I was employee number 24. There's now about a thousand employees. It was an eight million pound brand. It's now a two billion pound brand. I think they had one million followers at the time when I joined. It's now 20 million after I left. So it's been a, a phenomenal seven years. And what would you say is one of the most iconic things that you did while you were at Gymshark taking Gymshark from where it was to where you know it has become to to, to be honest there's there's a couple of things there's a strategic I'll give you a strategic one a tactical one and then an activation so from a strategic standpoint we realized that a lot of startups because they had social media they were using it to make themselves sound bigger than they are they were being super inauthentic and they'll try to appear very polished. And very early on, one of the, the things that we said was that we need to make sure that the, the, the gap between us and our community never widens, right? So the bigger that we get, the more interactive, the more transparent, and the more connected that we need to be. And that is our social strategy to the point where we, we were presenting comments from our comment section in the boardroom to make big major decisions uh, in terms of like the business, right? True intimacy, true connection, and making sure that our social channels poses a gateway between uh, the community and the business and vice versa. So so that was a, a, a big, big strategic point. From a tactic side, uh, there's a company here called John Lewis. And every time John Lewis, we, we, we say that they, they own Christmas. It's not Christmas until the John Lewis ad comes out in December here in the UK. And we said, okay, cool. What is that for fitness? And it was actually the first campaign uh, that I worked on, which was that we wanted Gymshark to own the New Year, New Me movement. So Gymshark 66, encouraging people to, to kickstart their year with a, with a workout challenge that will enable them to, to build new habits and actually keep their New Year's resolutions was the synonymous campaign that lived and breathed throughout the brand for the whole time that I was there. And honestly, it it was phenomenal. It's like a separate brand of its own. I think Gymshark 66 itself has over a million hashtag uses and and everybody was just getting involved there is a great way for it was a great way for us every year to bring in new consumers through user generated content and turning our community into billboards for 3 months straight it's basically free advertising from a from an activation standpoint during the covid period we probably did our best work from standing up for the Black Lives Matter movement, creating our, we called it the fuck standing on the sidelines movement and giving our platform to, to black people and people of color to be able to showcase their voices, to helping PTs who are losing their jobs in the, in the height of the pandemic by giving them our platform to show, to promote their business. There just, there was a lot of things that happened in 2020 when we took a step back from being the, the protagonist and gave our community the floor, which meant that we were one of the success stories during that period. And that was great from a cultural standpoint, from a brand standpoint, but from a financial standpoint, it was phenomenal because we were the only brand that seemed to be giving instead of taking. And for some reason, that seems to be a unique proposition for most brands. No, that's excellent. You know, 
what you said about Gymshark 66 is what I want to really zero in on because it seems very authentic that one of the things that people want to do at the start of a new year is to really have a goal that they are chasing. And obviously everyone has some fitness and health goals that they want to chase. How do you as a company bring in such innate authenticity into viral pain that really gets sticky with your customers? What, what ways should startups and small companies think around creating such a sticky and authentic campaign? I, I don't even think that we, we get into a mindset of campaign. Right. I think that there's a being in the community business for the last 10 years. I think that that, that that's now become a buzzword that people want, but they don't actually understand what it means. You can never own a community. The communities already exist. You just have to pick the one that you want to be a part of, be an authority in and get people to recognize you as the leader. And the way that you get people to recognize you as a leader is that you earn that trust by demonstrating that you understand the ins and outs in that community, that wants, that needs, and you can actually be a voice for them. And basically what we did is that we studied the fitness space, the discrepancies that exist, the pain points that exist, the highs that exist, and we just turned that into contents uh activations and strategies and tactics, right? You recognize that there's a unifying moment when everybody cares about fitness. So we therefore made that our highlight moment. And because people are doing that organically and authentically, it's actually not a challenge. It's just a low, it's just us being in the right place at the right time and going towards the tide. So, so I think that a lot of our strategies was one, what is happening in the fitness space that's uh, that galvanizes everybody together how can we be a part of that conversation but in a way that is actually authentic to our audience for example our twitter page and, and going back to the analogy where i talked about the fact that every platform is a different room and how you behave in that platform is based on whoever sets the rules of engagement right and twitter we realize that people like to troll on twitter people don't take themselves as seriously actually us coming onto the platform with a no days off workout every day mindset will just lead to us getting bananas thrown at us, right? We'll be the boomer account. So we actually created a persona of somebody that's into fitness, but not really loves all elements of it. Like somebody that's into fitness, but hates leg day or they're into fitness, but hates eating chicken and rice every day. And we just made content of the back of the pain points in the fitness space. And eventually our Twitter page became actually one of our most successful ones because people trusted that the people behind the account and therefore the people behind the brand actually understood them. And then when those pain points start to inform the way that we do product design and creation, that's when you hit gold, right? So, so going back to your question, because we're authentic users, believers of the space and the community, we're able to rightfully know where to be and how to connect with our community. And that was pretty much our content strategy. Again, that goes back to a lot of authenticity and just trying to find out what your brand really cares about. Like, but what my insight from everything that you said is that the com communities already exist and you don't create them or you don't own them. You just find a way to become a part of it and show the leadership in it. And, and I think that's very insightful. You know, you've spoken on a couple of platforms and you've, you've said that one of the things that you hate personally around social media is that there are people who are trying to create content for the sake of content, but social media is supposed to be a tool for value creation. Yeah. 
what what does that value mean for the average customer and how do companies rethink the way they do value because i don't think that sometimes people are just creating content for the sake of content it's just that they are missing out on what value that the audience are looking for or they're kind of experimenting and not just like hitting the nail on the head and going back to your question and what, and what i meant by that quote is that a lot of people create in the dark room and then they put content out there and then they wonder why nobody else interacts, right? It's because it's it's them pushing towards an audience. What true content in the social space is, it has to encourage uh, uh, somebody to come in and fill the void. A, a post is only viral if two people are having a conversation about it. A post is not viral when one person is forcing the conversation down somebody's throat. So you need to be creating content that encourages discourse, conversation, shareability, and connection. So, so, so just posting things that make you look good doesn't encourage other people to get involved, right? You have to, and when you go to the whole conversation around value proposition, it's different towards the audience that you have. That's why you can't shy away from doing the work of understanding who your consumer is and what are the pain points that they currently have and how your business can fill those pain points, either through sharing knowledge about a particular topic or conversation that people don't know, either through creating a emotional reaction through making people laugh through making people cry through making people feel a particular way that could be the missing void that happens so the value proposition that's relevant depends on what is missing right now that your competitors are not offering and you have to do that work and realize what that means for your industry and for your consumer i want to know more about understanding your consumer and understanding consumer groups at scale we talk a lot about the creation side, the content side of social media, but what does social media help in terms of obtaining the data and understanding the audience at a deeper level? And also, how does that differ to the pre-social media era? So back in the day, somebody convinced us that it was all about mass reach, even though we didn't know what mass reach actually was. People were, were, were selling slots on TV and on billboards for hundreds of thousands and millions of pounds and dollars uh, uh, because they'll tell you that a hundred thousand people or a million people will walk past this area or a million people are watching this show right now but but what it didn't say is that of that million people how many of them actually paid attention to your ad first and foremost how many of them had an opinion on your ad and what that opinion actually was now, social media can give you all of that, right? So you know how many people have viewed it, you know whether they've engaged with it, and you know what the sentiment of the posts were. That's effectively what the value proposition is from a listening standpoint. I think that a lot of people actually think that social media is a promotional tool. Actually, it's more powerful as a listening tool, and you can do that at multiple levels. One, there's, a, there's various social media listening tools that allows you to understand not just what's happening in your comments, your mentions, but also what's happening on the comment sections of your competitors. But also, you don't even need to spend any money. You can just go to your comment section, find out key themes based on the content that you put out there. If your content actually encourages people to share some form of information back to you, for example, we used to put out uh, products 
of the same set, but in different colors, in content format on our channels, and ask people which color do they love the most. And based on the colors that appeared the most in the comment section, we knew what was the most popular. We'd even ask them, okay, cool, uh, which color palette uh, going forward or how do you wear your gym wear do you mix and match the sets or all of these things are very engaging pieces of content but they give us really great insight that we could give back to the product team one other question that we asked was if you are ben francis who owns gymshark what would you do in the next five years right to really bring the business in the forefront that true engagement of asking the community questions and actually delivering on it and doing something with it encourages them to give you more insights and if you can take those insights and refine your business surprise surprise you're able to resonate with the consumer and are able to really able to give them something that they want and it doesn't actually require any fancy tools it just requires a very simple way to do it is you put in content out there that are questions to provide you with answers you read the comments you go to other people that are in your industry, you read their comments and what people are liking, hating, or, or, or needing from the brand, and you go to influencers around the space and see what content they're creating. If you can bridge all those three key pieces of information, you're not only able to come up with a sound marketing strategy, but a great business strategy for how you actually fulfill the needs that the consumer is missing right now. And that's how I feel that it all works together. I love how we're having an unconventional approach to, you know, a lecture from you because <laughs> it's very practical, all the things that you're saying. And hopefully people that listen to this who are entrepreneurs can take that into action. Influencer marketing is one of the evolutions of uh, marketing now, especially as a result of social media. What is one of the things that you think people get wrong when it comes to influencer marketing? Going back to the terms about buzzwords, I have a theory that influencer marketing always existed. It's, it's not even a, a theory, it's a fact, right? And the big thing about social media, I think that once people start to put it in a different category and position it as a dark art, that's when a lot of people get lost and confused along the way. So with my examples, I like to use, just like in the last example, I used the, the example about people walking on roads and TV. I like to use where this has happened before and how this is just that, but online, right? So, so influencer marketing was effectively what Michael Jackson was doing with Pepsi. It is effectively what David Beckham was doing with Adidas. It just changes the platform. So as soon as people get the inclination that the person that is telling you or recommending these products is being paid to do so, and it's not because they actually care about it, that's when they move on to the next place that's going to give them a real authentic opinion as to why they should actually part ways with that money. So it started off with singers and musicians, music stars, and then it went on to like sports stars. And then it went to people in their bedroom doing TikToks, right? The, the, the reason being is, first we went from an era of professionalism. Back in the day when you had a dental ad, they'll put in some guy wearing a lab coat telling you that he's a dentist. And the fact that he's done all this research and you should trust him to buy the product. And then it went to celebrities that you wanted to emulate and it was the aspirational era. So you bought things from people that you wanted to be like. And now in the modern day era and what we call the influencer marketing era, people were now in the, in the era of uh, commonality. You want to buy and are influenced from people that you believe see the world in the same view that you do. So with that being said, 
as a brand, you need to completely understand how your consumers see the world and who are the people that are currently the authorities within that space to be able to talk about your product and gain trust within that audience. What tends to happen is that everybody, again, looks at headline numbers. How many followers do they have? Uh, uh, and then they just like spend a lot of money based on reach. Actually, it's all about depth, connection, and authenticity. You need to be able to find the right influencer for your consumer and your brand. And people don't take that work to go deeper to do that true intricate matchmaking that needs to happen for a consumer to see your brand, that uh, influencer, and believe that that's an authentic connection and relationship and something that they should trust. Sometimes they will do things that are completely outside of their brand values just because they think that the reach will be able to do the work for them. That doesn't happen. You have to make sure that the influencers that you connect with authentically connect with the values of your brand and align with the consumers that you're trying to appeal to. And that's what I think that people get wrong. You know, that's very insightful. What I'm interested to know is because you've been in the space for a very long time, what is your most favorite brand influencer story? <laughs> and I'm keen to know also if there were micro-influencers or very tiny influencers who, because of just, just very good marriage between a brand, they, they kind of um, built off of each other and became great together because of that very well-placed marriage of a brand and an influencer, even though maybe at the time that influencer was not so huge. Michael Jordan's sneakers were always a craze, but I remember the earliest almost like example of influencer marketing that I saw was with Vine and how everybody was making skits about Jordans. Don't scuff my Jordans. You managed to get these Jordans. And literally everybody that I was growing up with just all needed Jordans and they didn't know why, right? And, 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 and that was the first inclination when I realized that brands are the ones that are the puppeteers behind this. This is not just I, I as a marketing major, I saw through that. But then I recognized how but by, by, by getting people to authentically that are already fans of your brand to be the faces of your brand and empowering them and giving them a platform and growing alongside them, that's the winning strategy. Gymshark did that. A lot of Gymshark's athletes till today were the athletes that they had in the early days. And the strategy was very simple. Get people that are within our space that we are fans of, that love our brand because they give them the products ahead of time and they love the products. They actually want to work with the brand authentically. That's when you get the best uh, matchmaking with influencers. And, and then you, you get some really like out there ones that, that you don't see coming, but they make a lot of sense. There's a guy called Francis Bourgeois and he's into trains and he was just doing videos about like trains that he loved. And then he ended up getting a brand collaboration with Gucci in which he did a train journey from the UK to, to Paris uh, uh, to be able to go to one of the fashion shows. Big collaborations are the ones where there's an authentic connection and the brand allows the influencer to be the influencer, right? And allows them to be themselves and incorporate their brand within how they like to, uh, uh, um, to, to connect. There's another guy called Dude with Sign who just goes to random places in New York and has signs that pretty much infiltrate the way that we all think. That's pretty much social media insight on a billboard. And then what brands do is allow them to sponsor 
those signs because they align with the value that the brand is giving. I just feel like there's not one specific one, but brands that I see that either build influencers up as opposed to just piggybacking off the back of influencers, those that allow influencers to be the authentic self, and those that actually contribute to the creative process in a, in a positive way are the ones that stand out to me. What would you prefer or what would you advise against? Is it a couple of micro-influencers or maybe just some big influencer? Because, you know, some of these companies out there, they go with one big, one big um, influencer and that becomes the face of the company of a sort. I think going for the big influencer strategy is a waste of time, especially if you're at the start of your journey or, or when you're kicking things off. I much believe that it's better to identify a niche that you want to infiltrate, micro and, and nano influencers within that space that also create really great content. Get them on board with your brand. Don't just sell them, send them products cold and create a transactional relationship. Actually get them sold by the brand, embody them into your content strategy, embody them into your in real life strategy and build from there. I think that everybody tries to go from zero to a hundred very, very quickly. But then the downside to that is, especially with big influencers, you just become on a conveyor belt of all these other brands that are trying to reach to their community. And eventually you're paying a lot of time for an influencer that's not actually going to give you the return. It's almost like when Puma got Neymar after the Nike deal. He got the biggest contract of his life, but Nike already rinsed out all his brand equity. No one's going to buy Pumas off the back of of that deal because they know that he, it was the end of his career. He's getting the most money that he can. And yeah, we still love Neymar, but we know that his heart's at Nike, right? Get them in early, grow with them. That's the best way for you to gain that uh, authentic connection, not only with the influencer, but actually successfully convince the audience that it's the person who wanted to be a part of that business. I'm thinking right now, what is going to be the next frontier of social media? You know, with how successful these, especially micro-influencers have become. What do you think? Because you're the, you're the theory guy. You're always theorizing. <laughs> what is, what is the, what do you think is going to be the next thing that people should look at as the next frontier? That, you know, all those people that rejected you, if they are listening now and knowing that you have become one of the top marketers in the world, what, are, what they should they be listening so that they don't miss out again? <laughs> I think there was a, there's a theory that says that humans are actually only meant to connect with a small tribe of people of like five or up to five or 10 people max. So if you're considering that there's some people that have millions of followers, no wonder people are having mental breakdowns and, and mental health is such a big thing at, at the moment because we're doing things that we're not psychologically or physiologically built for right we're, we're, now we're not worried about the opinions of five to ten people we're worried about the opinions of hundreds to thousands to millions of people so 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 i think that whilst the blueprint of social media has been to 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 create platforms that brings in people at masses to connect to a bigger stage I actually think that platforms that allow you to stay within a niche are the ones that are going to do very well. A safe niche of people that where you align. I just feel like because of platforms like Facebook, where the commonality you have is the fact that you knew each other when you were young. Now, the older that you're getting, 
the less connected you are because you become different people as you grow older. So you gravitate to spaces where you're connected by interest or mindset. So I think that any platforms that allows people to connect with their niche and great deeper connections as opposed to superficial ones is where people are going to go. I think that we're going to do the whole fashion thing and go back to the 90s. People are already starting to wear baggy jeans. I'm listening to Wu-Tang Clan every day. People are going to go back to having one-to-one interactions and value conversations as opposed to trying to broadcast everything. That's why uh, Instagram DMs is doing better than the comment section right now, right? People are valuing more deeper connected experiences. That's why platforms such as Be Real are doing well. That's why anything that like Twitch does well because people are able to connect with their niche. So any platform that's allowed able to allow people to better connect with their niche in a more immersive way, they're the ones that are going to win. And I'm very fascinated to see how blockchain and Web3 plays a part in that. No, definitely. So that's a very good segue very tactical segue to <laughs> into the conversation on Web3 because now you are the chief community officer at Iconic. Can you tell us what Iconic does? Yeah, yeah so Iconic is a venture studio and what they do is they, they utilize next-gen technology to help generate new ways of engagement for for mass for the mass market so it's a very simple way to say that they're always they're always keeping the ears on the ground for what's the latest technology and how they can utilize that to encourage engagement with our digital in our with our digital selves right and and obviously blockchain uh ai are all the the current block the the current buzzwords and Ironic has built a super team together to understand those technologies and humanize those technologies so that we can actually use them as opposed to just get really excited about these buzzwords. Yes. So you mentioned humanized again, and you already mentioned the word humanized a few times during our discussion on social media. So I was wondering whether similar to the way you entered into social media by coming from a theoretical aspect and then practicalizing it, whether there has been a similar thought process for the selection of entering into the Web3 industries. You're starting to know me very, very well. I, I haven't changed, right? I, I, I always, this all started with Steve Jobs and how he humanized marketing, right? And with everything that I look at, uh, uh, when people throw the big words at me and the big features at me and all that stuff, I, I, I don't understand that. What I do is I take all that jargon and I try to say, okay, cool, where have I seen this before? And and how can I simplify it in a way that not only I understand, not not just what's in front of me, the whole entire window. And then actually, how can I sell? You only know something if you can teach somebody else how to use it. Right. So, and a lot of people that say a lot of big words, they don't know how to actually teach other people to actually do something. Right. So, so the reason why I joined Iconic, uh, and why I wanted to work with them as a partner, not only are they amazing, uh, an amazing team, but they shared my viewpoint on the fact that with, with everything that we approach platforms, uh, uh, technology, etc., it's all about humanizing it, simplifying it, and just focusing on the value proposition that it actually gives to the end user, 
right? There's no, if you have to keep educating people on what, like nobody understands the technology behind your smartphone. We just know what it does. So if you can understand the technology to just to focus on the value proposition of how you can make people's lives easier, better, more connected, give them the value, a, a value add, then that's all that we need to do here. And, and especially when you look at the blockchain space, this is a lot of people that are telling you about NFTs, this NFTs that make money here, make this, that, that, that's all the spaces right now. No one's been able to attach the EQ to the IQ right? And that's what we're here to do. And that's what my blueprint is. With everywhere where there's IQ, I aim to attach EQ to it, to understand that IQ and actually make it scalable for normal humans like ourselves. You spoke about behavioral psychology at scale in another interview. And that is kind of similar to the EQ discussion and where that is pointing at. And I think for me personally, listening to your simplifications and how you use a lot of analogies that hold true irrespective of digitalization or technology makes it kind of easier to understand because a lot of the things at the end of the day are just human are yeah the behavior psychology at scale you refer to so now taking this approach towards web3 where the trust component and the component of community building are of utmost importance. I'm wondering maybe what are the nuances and differences in that aspect from social media to Web3? And then maybe also what is new in terms of platforms or social media that is coming up in the Web3 space? So not necessarily the mass um, social media that we all know of, like the Instagram or the Twitters, but or what else comes into play specifically for the Web3 industry? Well, well the, the, the answer is, I don't know, Ioconic, right? And the products that we're building. And, and that's why, what we're doing, what we're doing. Because I know that Meta have just pulled out of, of utilizing NFTs in their, in their space. I, I think the big lie we've all been told is that the upcoming space is purely about financial gain it's not right and here's how i simplify things what uh blockchain web3 will allow us to do the metaverse all that stuff will allow us to bridge the gap between our digital and our physical self before nfts and the whole new wave of web3 you could differentiate what's physical and what's digital. Because, of course, the money that you earn on games is digital currency that you can't use in the physical space. But what a Web3 blockchain technology will do is allow us to actually live like how we live offline, online, where we can be immersed in it and then I think that people will not be able to tell the difference between it to the point where I see that I can see a time because I'm an Arsenal fan. Say, say of that as you will. Uh, uh, my, my, my dad's an Arsenal fan too. And, and he lives in South Africa. Whenever my dad comes over and if you see my Instagram, there's a picture of my dad being here and we went, we went to go watch the Fulham game. Uh, and if you know anything about Arsenal tickets, they're not very cheap at the moment. 
they're not very cheap at all. They're especially not cheap now. And you can't get a ticket anywhere. But I always say that when my dad comes, no matter what the cost is going to be, we are going to go watch a game because it's how we connect uh, as a family. We watch the game. And I said that if there was a time when me and my dad could feel like we're both at the Emirates Stadium, when he's in South Africa and I'm in London, imagine how much I would pay for that. Well, but what I'm saying there is the people that I believe will really benefit from the Web3 space and modern day technology uh, uh, financially are those that are able to build community and tribalism already. So you can't skip a stage. You can't say, okay, cool, we're going to ignore Web2 and the social space and building community and connection. We're just going to dive into Web3, give people a few NFTs and make our money. It doesn't work that way. The brands that are going to really leverage on the space that we're going are those that understood the importance of being the enthusiast as opposed to being the expert, met the community where they're at, build rapport, and now they're able to utilize the Web3 technology to give some form of ownership and immersive experience. I think that the cool thing as well is that it's going to change how education works. Think about how people consume and, and study. We don't all consume and, and learn the same way. Some would say that I'm dyslexic. I learn through listening and seeing. So that's why I love documentaries and audiobooks and podcasts. So now imagine if instead of me reading about the world war or whatever, I can actually be placed in it, right? The level of immersion that can happen, fields such as education or history when you're going to a museum, it's just going to be a whole new immersive learning experience. How is that going to impact travel? Will people have to go on planes anymore if they can be in Portugal and get the sun rays when they're in the middle of Accra, right? Even though you already have your own sun. But uh, but but for the most part, I just feel like there's a whole... Anybody that tells you that they figured out what the world is going to look like is lying. It's just a whole host of possibilities of where we can go. Just depends on how much of a priority this will be for tech companies, especially with AI now being the new distraction. So I was saying that it's funny how you are characterizing AI as the new distraction or distraction, if I, if, I, if, I, if I got to you right. I'm saying that a lot of people are toting AI to be that thing that completely changes the face of marketing. What do you see the contribution or the change that uh, AI is going to be? Or you don't really think it's going to distract it? Well, there's still going to be human um, elements in there. Like AI is the real deal, right? AI is, is no joke that that's going to change everything. But education systems, going back to the whole conversation around IQ and EQ, if your job role and the way that you differentiated yourself with everybody versus everybody else was based on how smart and intelligent you were, you're in trouble, right? The people that will, 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 will be on the, on the front seat are those that have emotional intelligence and are entrepreneurial. Those people that, because they went to school and they were not the smartest, because they didn't have an encyclopedia in their brain and people cast them out, now they have a tool to be able to bridge that gap. And it's all about now how street smart are you? How can you leverage and curate this information to actually accelerate whatever it is that you're doing? So those that are already entrepreneurial, already looking for an edge 
AI is just going to accelerate so much things. People won't need as many people to do stuff. That's a whole other conversation. AI is going to categorically change our world. The issue is, is that people are now going to utilize it as a buzzword and get immersed in it to showcase that they're experts. We're going to keep investing and throwing money in it to the point where as normal society goes, we're going to go overboard again, right? Like the, I think there's a petition now where people are talking about the whole conversation about stopping AI. I think Elon Musk is involved in it because, we're, again, going back to the whole conversation around social where we we're only supposed to connect with five to 10 people. And now we have a platform of a million people and everybody's suffering from mental health, imposter syndrome, unhappiness with our surroundings. AI is just going to do that even quicker. The quicker that people keep adopting it, the more a very simplistic mind will say, I don't need more people to work on my business or to collaborate with, or I don't need to go to university because I have this. And then things and institutions that we've seen around for a very long time will crumble overnight. Now, where will these people go, right? Yes, it's right from a practical standpoint. We have great, a lot of great power, but I'm a comic book fan. So with great power comes great responsibility. I just don't think that we're ready for the responsibility that will come from AI at this moment in time. But I think with AI, and I mean, of course, it will evolve. So I'm not trying to predict the future. So I'm really talking about a current stage. And currently, to a large extent, I see it as a consensus machine because it levels out certain fields. Maybe that is what you're pointing at with the IQ part. And for instance, if you define yourself by having superior memory or processing power, then it becomes a leveler. But as something levels out, something else becomes more important. So maybe that's what you are pointing at with the entrepreneurial and the creativity space. So my thoughts are around aspects like authenticity and the creation of consensus and how real that actually is or whether those consensuses are driven within an echo chamber and what kind of the consequences are with that. AI has been in algorithms that exist in social media platforms already, right? The impact that it's had is that, one, it's the, the thing that's driving Instagram and all those platforms and why if you go on somebody else's phone, Instagram looks like a completely different experience, but then we all love it the same because AI has understood what our world is. But the issue with that is, is that if, if we keep living a sheltered AI life on social platforms, you just keep reinforcing that you get no challenge. Don't uh, expose yourself to areas that are or opinions that are different to you. I'll give an example. Everybody thought in the UK, or at least my friend group, that Labour was going to win the elections because that's what all my feeds said. All the media said that, all the individuals said that, and then on the election day, oh, it's a different party. The same thing happened with Donald Trump when he became president. Everybody thought, because we're seeing Jay-Z doing concerts with Hillary, we're seeing all these different things, complex news was telling us this is happening, at the end of the day, the result was different because there's a completely different um, uh, world that are seeing something completely uh, uh, different to what you are. And we're, and we're creating sheltered, disjointed perspectives. And that's what AI has already done. Now, if we keep going into that, 
I just see that that being multiplied even further because what the platform owners are seeing is how much engagement we're getting, how much connection we're getting, how many people are staying onto the platform. They just see that. But then the ramifications from a human standpoint is what people are ignoring. But by all means, whilst I am a marketeer, what you guys have probably realized is that human, I'm a big fan of humans and the humanization of the technology, but also the responsibility that we have to ensure that we look after our society. That's why whenever we used to post stuff at Gymshark, there were, there were two types of posts. There was posts that work and we know he's going to get the engagement. We know it's going to get people liking because we understood the algorithm. And there was posts that were right that we knew won't work very well. We knew the algorithm probably doesn't want us to promote it because it doesn't drive people to like be addicts onto the app. But we knew that we have this responsibility to ensure that we're looking after our audience. If you keep showing people with six pack abs every time, you're going to make people feel really, really bad about themselves. You need to be able to diversify. You need to be able to showcase a broader uh, new normal of fitness. Those are all things that we should encourage that people go also challenge themselves to go away from the path of least resistance. And the issue with AI is if you stop thinking for yourself and make the technology think for you, eventually it's going to replace you because it realizes that you are no longer of use. And that's the danger that we have. These insights are very crucial, especially as we move into the new frontiers of technology. And I do think, Alfred, you should definitely consider lecturing someday because a lot of your analogies are just spot on. <laughs> <laughs> and so you should get a professorship job and, and, and tell people more stories around marketing. But I think that's great. I think to segue into the last piece of the conversation is that you are also very passionate about representation because just... Uh, marketing is not just like, uh, like you're saying, it's not about um, trying to extricate the best amount of money you can get in the, from people, but it's also about storytelling, it's about being authentic, and that definitely needs more representation um, of different people all over the world. What, what do you feel like um, companies um, are missing out by not especially like you just, just said, you know, like, you know, varying the storytelling so that people don't feel like they are extricated from it. What do you feel like companies gain? And what do you feel like they miss out of if they do not have that mindset of a broad narrative of storytelling, uh, for a more encompassing narrative of storytelling? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer this firstly in a controversial way, and then I'm going to bring it back to the bigger point and the bigger picture. We love controversial. Definitely. Yeah, we, we got a lot of controversial. <laughs> so I, I don't think that representation and diversity is necessary everywhere. Once you study how business people think, they're, they're not in the charity business or in the well-being business, they're in the money business. So for you to successfully convince them that something is of value to them, you need to be able to break it down to facts and figures. And, and I'll give you an example. In football, right? Your objective is to have the best team, like, like to have the best team, right? So you need people to bring something different to the mix. You need somebody that's a little bit more skillful and you'll find where the sk more skillful players are. You need somebody that's a little bit more uh, uh, like strong. So you go to the British leagues and you'll get that type of player. So there's natural diversity that happens 
because it's a part of the game plan to get the best people that provide a different skill to the mix and make them as part of a team. Now, if you're doing a hundred, like a hundred meter sprints, you don't need diversity in a hundred meter sprints. Everybody that's in the hundred meter sprints lineup final are all black guys, right? Because they're the fastest people. So is it a job where it doesn't require any thinking and it's just purely physical? Then you just need people that are very good at doing that job and you just need that. If your business is a, is a manufacturing uh, business where you need people to just do one thing where there's not a, you already have your script, there's no thinking in it, you don't require people to bring different mixes and ideologies to the table, then you just get people that do it the fastest. Now, when you start to get into the creative space, the business space, spaces where it requires different strategies, different mindsets, different thinking, different background, and different contexts, because you need to understand people that come from different areas of the world, then it's not just nice to have diversity, it is crucial to a business to have that, because you'll end up saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing, and will end you up in we're in cancel culture land, right? You don't want to be canceled. You need to be able to have that when it requires thinking and when your audience is, is broad and diverse, then it's important to have a team that reflects that, right? In how you build your product, in how you market yourself, all areas that requires thinking and problem solving is where I believe that you need diversity to work. Now, the issue is, is that people, again, just like with AI, choose the path of least resistance and just pick people that either look like them or have the same background as them because it's familiar. The winning strategy is to get people that are better than you, that are different to you. That's how you build teams going forward. And the businesses that embody that and seek that are the ones that are going to win going forward. That's just the way that I see it. No, I think that's a great segue to the conversation. I don't know if you have anything to add, Daniel. I was just wondering, because it's a very interesting topic, and because within the discussion around diversity, I think there is a component where sometimes, or probably even often, there's too much emphasis put on certain markers of diversity. Skin color is an easy one to see. But a lot of times I would say, let's say in your case, Elfrey, for instance, you would have more in common in terms of perspective with white people, Asian people that come from a similar background versus a black person from an entirely different background. So irrespective of color or other external markers of diversity, I think the emphasis should be on diversity of thought. And of course, that's more difficult to measure. And aside of the difficulty in measuring it, there is a component where I think you mentioned before controversial. Yes, where it becomes controversial and you're kind of going against the general consensus if you start to push towards more emphasis on diversity of thought. And depending on who you have that discussion with, you sometimes do not want to cross that boundary or make a statement that is out there, but maybe you can still elaborate a bit on that. 
Oh, 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 I, I'm happy to do it. Now, now that I'm a CEO of my own business, I, you, you can try cancel me if you want. Well, what, what, I, what, what I say is, the reason why I say that is, for us to successfully encourage, um, and, and in Africa it's different, but in, in here in the UK, it's predominantly white. For us to successfully encourage people to take a chance on diversity and representation, and actually make it champion is as part of that business strategy. It has to make business sense and it has to drive results. And I'm telling you, for you to be able, the winning strategy is to actually encourage people to look for culture ad and not culture fit by actually putting out, changing the way that the interview processes are to understand the different mind frames that they need to be able to be a winning team and start to put people into buckets and ensuring that they fill each area. That's the only way that people, because then you'll see tangible results. And when people see somebody doing something well, they'll look to copy it. And and again, going back to the whole ethos of social media, and this could be a great way for us to come at a very great natural ending point, is that, is that, the reason why I went into social media is because I had a theory and I was not going to wait for somebody to tell me whether I can and can't do it. I was just going to do it and then prove it. So again, the reason why I started Butterfly Effect, my new business launching on Monday, is because this theory of diverse teams, nice plug there, this theory of diverse teams is what I'm actually putting... <laughs> ah, that's what I do, man. The, 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 the theory of diverse teams is what our team is being built on. And the reason why I call it butterfly effect is because I recognize that if we do it in a marketing space, people are going to see it and they're going to copy it, right? So I'm not just saying it, we're actually going to put it into action. This is just happens to be the first time that when I go on to one of these wild adventures, that somebody cared enough to put me on a podcast to say it out loud before I actually did it. So effectively, I, I, I like to have theories but I actually do it, and then people find that after the fact. No, I mean, we're very privileged to have the exclusive opportunity to get the announcement, but maybe <laughs> you want to spend the last minutes of it telling us about the vision of the uh, Butterfly Effect Studios and what you seek to achieve. The, the best way for me to describe it is I want it to be a, a bat symbol uh, for, for diverse creators to either see us as a destination or inspiration for the fact that they can do exactly the same thing. It's all about building a best-in-class creative house powered by diverse creators trying to help challenger brands win. Because I believe that instead of trying to go, and we can go for the biggest brands in the world, how you actually get people to pay attention to you is, but if you take the hardest challenges that where the odds are stacked against you and you deliver anyway, because then people will know that you're of value try to either hire you, therefore steal my team, or copy your business model, therefore hire more diverse people. Rather than me going on a microphone and telling, trying to convince people that that's the right thing to do, I'm just going to show them, right? And then eventually, they'll steal my team, which is great, or they'll steal our business model, which is great. And then eventually, you'll have more diverse people in the creative space and in, in prominent positions in the creative space. That's the butterfly effect. And that's how you actually make real change. And that's the change that we're trying to make on the Change Africa podcast. Uh, yes, and there we go. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> and we're so happy to have had you, Alfred. This is, this is turning out to be one of my favorite podcasts that we've ever had. And 
And it's amazing to have all your wisdom being shared with us. And this has been a very great episode of the Change Africa podcast. And we're so, so, so happy to have had you on the podcast, Alfred. Amazing. Amazing. It's great to be here. I'm pumped. <laughs> yeah, thank you. That was great, man. That was great. The Change Africa podcast is produced by Isaac Abwa and Daniel Murky. It is executive produced by Tim Yaustratus. The theme music and digital production is by Daniel Quay and graphic design by Andrew Ayi. This podcast is a production of Nexa Media.